God is good, isn't he? We want to welcome you here this morning. We want to welcome to those that are online. I understand some of our people had a really rough week. Um, for those that are into football and like Pennsylvania teams, it was not a good preseason, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> I guess the Eagles kind of didn't decide to fly, and the Steelers, we don't know what happened. And <laughs> preach it, yeah. Let me say this. We have a town hall meeting today, and people that are new wonder what town hall meetings are. Um, they're really times where we talk about what happened this summer. We're going to hear about the James Project, about VBS. Uh, we're also talking about some shifts that are happening at church, but mostly what we do is pray together. That's really what the meeting is about, and we'll be praying about various things this fall and situations, circumstances. And, and for me, it's an important time that we gather together because prayer brings that kind of unity. Now, in addition to that, we eat ice cream. Amen. I heard Frank say that, yeah. And if you like ice cream, come out, and uh, we will have enough here to, to take all you can eat. And uh, someone said, ooh, okay. But we'd like to invite you to that. We're in the midst of a series called The Prodigal God. And it's a story that is familiar to many. And to many, they remember it as the prodigal son, not the prodigal God. I, I first heard this kind of turnaround of the story when Tim Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal God. Found in Luke 15. And it's a story about a father and two sons. The younger son demands his inheritance while his father's alive. And in that culture, it's literally wishing your dad to be dead. And the proper protocol would have been for the father to disown the son. He didn't. But he gave him his third because the younger gets a third, the older gets two thirds. You might say, that's not fair. Well, that's part of their culture. That's what they did. And the son goes off on an extravagant living style and ends up after he runs out of money and there's a famine in a pigsty. And for a Jewish culture, that was the worst possible place to be. In that story, it says he comes to his senses. He says, my father's servants live better than I do. I'll go back, offer myself as a slave to my dad. And when he goes back, his father embraces him as a son throws a party, gives him a robe, gives him a ring, and the older brother is watching this, and he is very upset and refuses to go to the party. That's the story in a nutshell. Now, I've said before the word prodigal, we call it the prodigal son. The word prodigal is not found in the story. And the word prodigal means reckless spending. And historically, we attribute that to the younger son. And yes, the younger son was reckless in his lack of respect, reckless in his spending, reckless in his living. We also know the older brother was reckless in his judgment, in his self-awareness, because he had none. But the father was reckless in his generosity. And he violated the rules of common sense and family. But the object of this story is that God wanted them to think of sin salvation, and himself in a new way. And so he confronts our perspectives. Now, you've heard me say this before. We all live in alternative realities. 
and our perspectives create our reality. And if we're not careful, then our arrogance turns those realities into truth. And you see this all over our culture today where truth is subject to opinions. And of course, social media has made opinions the wildflowers of our day. And it's, it's why we need God's word. It's why we need community because in our diversity, together we can see God's truth more clearly. Now, let me give an illustration of how this works. This past week, I read an article about Moody Church. Dwight Moody founded the church in 1864. It's in Chicago. And of course, you know Chicago makes the paper almost daily. And it needs all the help it can get. For 17 years, Mooney Church has had a program, a school program called Hand Club for Kids. It's for underprivileged kids. They provide meals, medical care to the families and kids. They teach them life skills and they tutor them in their homework so they can do better in the local school systems. Well, the Illinois Department of Employment Security finds out what Moody's doing. In fact, Moody is offering so much assistance, this program has grown and escalated to way beyond the church could even imagine. And all of it's free. But the Illinois Department of Employment Security decided that this program should be assessed unemployment compensation taxes since it's not operated for religious purposes. Now, that's the key phrase. They looked at this, said this has nothing to do with religion. It was their perception. Their perception, and whoever these people are, was that helping people has nothing to do with religion. Now, we sit here and say, are they crazy? But that's their perception. That's their realities. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole lot of implications of this story. It's taken to court. And, of course, the court ruled in favor of the ministry. But think about it. Think about perspectives today. Isn't it why we have media outlets? So we can listen to the version that suits our reality. And we have to be careful about that because that can be religious as well as cultural. Isn't it why we change our language to suit what we want to believe? And so if you stand against the slaughter of babies... They say, no, you hate women and their health. I mean, listen to the language. It's why if you believe in sin, in some places they'll call you a bigot, a racist, and you hate people who struggle with sin. So think about perspectives. Now here's the outline we want to deal with this morning. I'm going to talk about two perspectives in this story because there's a lot of twos. There's two audiences, and we'll put this on the screen. There's two sons or two brothers And there's two choices. We're going to go down three and look at this sets of two to try to unpack perspectives that are relevant to us at GBC. Two audiences. Now here's the first lesson. When we look at the two audiences up front, the first lesson we learn is that we often push people away from Christ instead of drawing them to Christ. Remember how he said he's preaching to this audience? There was the tax collectors and sinners. That's the one audience. Then there was the religious leaders. And think about how the religious leaders viewed those tax collectors and sinners. Think about what they imposed upon them. Think about what they said to them. And with the religious leaders, if you study their heritage, 
their goal in life was to help people find God. I mean, that's what they were set out in mission to do. They had centuries of traditions of doing this. But our behaviors, our attitudes, and our language, if we are not careful, actually go against the very thing that we claim we want to do. Behaviors are what we think and what we act. And a lot of times we we say this, and we don't do it intentionally, but this is how we posture. We say, you know what? Everybody should think just like me. Everybody should act just like me. Everyone should be like me. Now, as Christians, we're to be like who? Christ. Our attitudes, whenever we start saying those people, we got a problem with attitudes. And, of course, language. It's interesting when you study Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, those are the three predominant religious groups, you immediately knew which group they were part of by the language they used. They each had their own terms, their own way of speaking about God, their own language about religiosity. So you could be in their presence about three minutes and know, well, they're a Pharisee, or or they're a a Sadducee, or, or they're an Essene. But here's the point. When he opens up the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, when we see how this audience came for two different perspectives, we treat people not like Christ treats us. Christ treats us with grace and truth. And in our religious culture today, we do one of two things. We're either all grace We don't want to talk about truth. We're just going to love people. We're not going to say anything or it's all truth. We use truth like a club and and there is no grace. We want someone to pay. Now I want to give two illustrations out of scripture. The first I want you to listen to because don't believe me on this. But here's the story. I'm going to read it in John 8. Just listen to this story. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came to the temple. Temple is like what we call church. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, they interrupted this service, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him. Now imagine this scenario. We're here in church. I'm preaching. In walks this religious group. They march down front, and they identify someone they call a sinner in front of the entire crowd. Teacher. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, we got issues with that because the the language there is the very act. So how did they know what was going on? What was, you know, we could ask a whole lot of questions. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher. Now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Truth, truth, truth. So what do you say? Now, here's their attitude. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they were out to trap Jesus. They were out to to use his words against him, to use his life against him, because they knew that he had compassion. Now, I asked one of the obvious questions is, where was the other person? Where was the man in this equation? Why did they just bring the woman? But that's for another time. Jesus bent down. And wrote with his finger on the ground. And that's one of the first questions I'm going to ask Jesus. I want to know what was he writing. As they continued to ask him. 
That means they just kept nagging. Okay, Jesus, tell us. Keep going. They just kept nagging, nagging, nagging. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Grace and truth. Stop sinning. You don't need to go there. It's a choice you make. So we have to be careful. It's always grace and truth. We think about how Christ treats us. It's grace and truth. Now, going back to the fact that there's times that we just push people away. In Scripture, in Matthew 23, here's the context. And then I'm going to read a passage. Jesus says, listen, the greatest among you shall be your servant. It's kind of this up-down perspective. We always talk about who's on top and who's in charge. He says, no, whoever's in charge, they're going to be a servant. They're going to be a slave. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's kind of this upside down kingdom he keeps talking about that is role reversal in terms of what we believe is culture. Then he goes and says this about the religious leaders. But woe to you. Now, these are the people that were trying to get people to see God. These are the people that in their culture would have been called good people. These are the people that were respected, that were honored, that were gone to as teachers, as leaders. I think sometimes we think they were just kind of these evil people behind the scenes. No, they were people that were highly respected. And here's what he says. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves. I mean, that's ouch nor allow those who would enter to go in. You shut Christ out of their lives. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. A proselyte is is when a person tries to make another mini version of them. You got to think like me, act like me, speak like me, and when you are like me, then you become a good follower of God. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ouch. Pharisees were into high control. God says, it's not about you. It's not about an authoritarian religion that you've formed. Rather, it's about the authority of God, the authority of Christ. And, and so often we, we mix those two up because we want to dominate our religious lives with human authority. So Jesus teaches us there's two ways to be lost. One is to be very bad. Those are the sinners. Those are the tax collectors. Or to be very good. Those were the Pharisees. Those were the scribes. There's two ways to be lost. Let's go to the next thing on the outline. We talked about two audiences. Let's talk about two sons. Now, the two sons represent the two audiences. 
One is the sinner. One is the moral individual. And it represents two self-salvation projects. I'm living life on my terms. And that was the older son and the younger son. But the younger son says, okay, I'm going to make a choice to go to the father. Both sons looked at their father and said, you owe me. Both sons attempt to control the father. One yields, the other one doesn't. Now we understand the lostness of the younger son. But it's the older son that confuses us. And again, next week we're going to get into this more. We're going to talk about the older brother. And I always think that it's a hard sermon for us to hear that have been in the church for a long time because many times we take on these attributes. Now, I don't warn you about that so you don't come next week, okay? (laughs) I've warned that because you can pray about it and say, what is God going to reveal to me? But there's a closer for a sermon Jesus preaches one day. And you know what a closer is. Let me sum it up. Let me get to the point. And here's what he says in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Now, he's not talking about work salvation. He's talking about truth. There is only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. See, the Pharisees and religious leaders, the older brother, have bought into this whole, I can earn my way into, and because I'm earning my way into, God, you owe me. I mean, that's really the illustration in the story. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? The word prophesy just means we're going to declare God's word. We cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. So we're not talking about people who, quote-unquote, lose their salvation. I mean, look at the phrase, I never knew you. They never had the relationship. They never entered into the kingdom through Jesus Christ. They were trying to earn their way by doing things they thought would somehow earn them recognition by God, and God would say, oh, you're such a good person, come on in. Depart from me, ye workers of lawlessness. Now, the younger brother knew he was lost. Remember the phrase we looked at last week? He came to his senses. The older brother was clueless. He had not come to his senses. In the younger brother, we know what lostness looks like. There's the pigsty. There's the hunger. There's the brokenness. There's the reckless living. I mean, there was no problem saying, well, yeah, the younger brother was living in sin. The older brother, we struggle more because he was religious. He he goes to, at least in our day, he goes to church. In the eyes of the culture, the older brother was very good. He was the son who was doing what sons ought to do. And so I'd ask myself this past week, is there any clues as to what lostness looks like in this whole morally righteous person, the older brother. Younger brother, we see it. But what about the other brother? This is where Tim Keller helped me out. And he pointed two things out in the story. One with the, other bro- the older brother, there was the undercurrent of anger. I mean, look at his reaction. His reaction was, that's not fair. I mean, grace is never fair. The fact that Christ died for us while we were still sinners is not fair. 
he compares himself to the younger brother saying, look at me and look at him. Look at everything I've done and look at everything he's done. He argues with the father. He refuses to go into the celebration of his brother coming home. He wants justice. And he's like the Pharisees who brought the woman taking adultery, set her in the middle of service and say, we want justice. Somebody has to pay. There needs to be punishment. And then Keller says there's what he calls duty without beauty. The son says, listen, all these years I've slaved for you. And look what I've done. And look what you've done. And so the older brother felt used. There was no joy. There was no mission. There was no community. He says, look at my younger brother. He brought disgrace. Look at what rebellion cost financially, social standing. But the tragedy is the older brother does not care one bit about the father's heart. And so the elder son looks at the father, duty without beauty, and feels used. The younger son looks at the father and sees the beauty. But isn't it just like us that we end up resenting the very thing that attracted us in the first place? And whether it's in marriage, whether it's in relationships, whether it's with Christ. I have to think about Adam and Eve. They lived in a beautiful world. But some poisonous seeds were sown in their minds. And they found a reason to bail. And of course, the ultimate lie that that tells us is that God is hiding something from us. Here's another lesson we learned from this. We and others come to the Father as we are, not as we think they or we should be. I hear so many times people that, that want to come to church or want to come to Christ, and sometimes they joke, well, if I walk through the church doors, the, the building's going to fall down. <laughs> no, it won't. But that says something about their heart. It says something that they have to change things first before they can come. No, you come first. And you accept Christ, and then you allow him to make the change. We can be the older brothers, can't we? In our heart of self-righteousness and legalism, we look down on anyone who's not like us. We can think ourselves better than those people. You see, in the older brother's mind, a vote for the younger son meant a vote against him. Just black and white thinking. He could not understand that the father loved both of them. And so Jesus was identifying two reactions. Go back to the two audiences. One was a punch in the face to the religious leaders. He was saying by this story, you do not understand the ways and the heart of God. To the sinners, it was tenderness. It was Romans 5. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, some translations say, Christ died for us. So that comes to two choices then. We have the two audiences. We have the two sons. And there's two choices we have to make. And those choices will fracture community or bring unity. Those choices will destroy ourselves or restore our soul. Those choices will send us in exile or bring us home. Those choices will 
identify idols and lies that we believe or they'll bring in truth. And here's the lesson we have to learn about those choices. We must, make, we must take an assessment of what is inside of us. It's a choice of self-awareness or a choice of deception. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 40. Let us ex- test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. It's always kind of interesting, the transgression. You see what he says? It's kind of like saying, if you test and examine your ways, you're going to end up going back to Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And this journey requires humility. This journey requires the position of submission. Think about this. We as the younger son, whether we're the older brother and become the younger son, if we return to the father, we give ourselves over to someone who is more powerful than us. I mean, that's the reality. That's the truth. And listen to the language of our culture. Our culture is always talking about power and taking control. It's telling of power. It's telling of control. And the kingdom of God says, you need to let go of power and let go of control. And that is tough for us in America. It's very easy to tell cultural religion today because they use authoritarian language to control people around them. They usually use the celebrity status of someone who tells everyone what to think, not how to think. But you're faced with two choices this morning. Choice of the older brother that says, I am not going to my father. I'm not going into the celebration. Or the choice of the younger son that says, I'm going to go home. I'm coming home. Now, I got two questions I want to ask you this morning. As we wrap things up, what's keeping you from going home? Now, this is just not a salvation question. It is, but it's more than that. I think all of you are aware that our journey in Christ, we get sidetracked and we get derailed and we start moving away from Christ. So what keeps you from turning around and going home? Is it anger? We saw that in the older brother. And we'll talk more about that next week. Is it unforgiveness? We see that in the older brother. Is it shame? It's very easy for the younger brother working in the pigsty, which violated Jewish customs, to sit there and say, I'm not worthy to go home, not in this condition. Maybe you're having too much fun. You know, back the story up to the younger son when the money was flowing, when his friends were there, when they were having a party. I mean, he did not think about going home. So what is keeping you from going home? Now, I want to say something I hope you understand. As I looked at this story, I said to myself, no matter what situation you're in, the older brother or the younger brother, It does not always feel safe to go home. Why? Because you're giving yourself over to someone who has far more power over you than you have. But let me say this. Even though it does not feel safe, it is. Because the father will only 
do what's in your best interest. And here's my desire for GBC. My desire is that we live like the Father and we create a safe place for people to come home. Amen? Now I realize when you look around, we're all people. And when you look around, if you realize that we're all people, you realize we're all sinners. And we're not always going to get it right. In fact, we'll get it wrong. But I want us to live grace and truth. I'm going to allow our diversity to unify us. And I'll talk more about this next week. But let's work at making this a place where people can come home. Now, the second question is what idols and lives are poisoning your life? Now, the reality is one cannot be in the presence of the Father and not change. And we will see our idols, we'll see our illusions, not all at once. I mean, God doesn't back up the dump truck and just kind of dump on us. I know for me in my journey, it's always something new that God just kind of peels away saying, have you ever considered this? And that's why today I consider things sin that 10 years ago I didn't. I think it's why Paul says he's chief among sinners. Because there's this continual journey of learning that as you grow in Christ, as the Holy Spirit sanctifies you, he opens up the reality of who you are and what you can be, but also who you are. Now, the younger brother comes home. The idols were tore down. The father brings the ring, the robe, and the party. The older brother, he confronted his idols, and he refused to listen. See, the confrontation of idols is a painful process. Idols bring a certain amount of comfort, don't they? And my desire is for GBC to be a place where we help one another tear down those idols. We, we help one another tear down those blind spots. We confront the lies that destroy the soul, that destroy the body of Christ, that destroy our mission. We help people with the perspective that God desires for us. Now I need to back up and ask this question. Next week, by the way, we're going to have an exciting service. Uh, Not because I'm preaching on the older brother. But we're going to be uh, sharing some people's stories through baptism. And for those that don't understand baptism, it is a celebration of a person coming home. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean everything's gone. It just means they've decided to follow Jesus. And as of now, we have six people. They're going to go into the water. And I am just looking forward to that. So you want to be here next week. So you'll see a lot of grace. Then when we preach about the older brother, you hear a lot of truth. <laughs> um, the older brother's sermon's really hard on us. Anyway, if you're here this morning and you need to come home, by that I mean you need to make that choice to follow Jesus. You haven't done that. You've never done that. You never ask him as your savior and Lord, and you need to do that this morning, we want to give you that opportunity. So if you're here and you'd like to do that, our tradition has been you stand up and we'll get someone with you and they'll sit down and pray with you and go through exactly what that means. And again, don't sit in your mind saying, listen, I I don't quite know, but my heart's longing for that. If you're here this morning and want to make the decision, I'm going to ask you to just stand to your feet right now. 
And we want to celebrate with you uh, your homecoming. Is there anyone? Again, you might have to yell at me because of the lights in my eyes. And by the way, that invitation is for those that are watching uh, live as well uh, in their homes. Now, I won't be able to see you raise your hand, but uh, God will. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close with a quote and a prayer, and then we're going to just share in song together. This quote is from Thomas Merton. He says, your life is shaped by the end you live for. You are made in the image of what you desire. Think about that. You are made in the image of what you desire. May we all desire Christ because he brings us to the Father. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father God, as we read this story, some of it confuses us because we don't understand the older brother. And yet, if we look in a mirror, it's so often us. I pray you'll prepare our hearts for that next week as we get into that material. I pray, too, that all of us don't have the attitudes we see to the audience that, well, there's the sinners over here and there's the religious people over here. May we realize we're all in this together. We are all people who simply follow Jesus. And while different sins capture our souls and our minds, all sin brings death. All sin brings destruction. All sin destroys our souls in that very life that you want to revive in us. I pray for those getting baptized next week, Lord, as um, they're going to share their stories. Give them the right words. Give them the courage because to share that in a public setting sometimes is tough because we wonder what people think and are they're going to say. And as we as a congregation, Lord, may we just surround them with prayer and celebrate with them what God is doing and what God is going to do. Most of all, Lord, we pray that you make us at GBC here a safe place for people to come home. A place that allows your spirit to restore people. A place that allows Christ to be front and center. A place that, uh, that humbly submits and bows our knees to an audience of one. We thank you we can be here this morning. We thank you for the possibility of what you are doing. We thank you for worship that we gather together. And we ask all these things, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, because he alone is worthy. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together as we worship.